there's a guy called Jonathan Rosen who I've done some work with. He who has the, he talks about meta crisis instead of poly crisis. That he's like actually there's a there's a single there is a an overall an overarching or an underpinning crisis that that gives rise to all of these things. And that I think is the level at which I'm trying to work. And for me, that crisis, I understand the meta crisis to be a crisis of story, because I believe that we are trapped in what I call the consumer story, which is a a story that says that the right thing for us to do is to pursue self-interest, to to choose the option that suits us best from those that are offered, on the basis that individual self-interest will add up to collective interest and deliver the best society as a whole. Hi, welcome back. My guest this week is John Alexander the author of Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is in All of Us, and the co-founder of the New Citizen Project, a strategy and innovation consultancy with a mission to catalyze a shift to a more participatory citizen-led society and driven by a belief that given the right opportunities, people can and will shape the things that matter to them for the better. John began his career in advertising, working for agencies such as BBDO and Fallon in London making ads for some of the world's biggest brands. However, John became disillusioned with the industry when he realised he was caught up in a story he didn't believe in, the consumer story. Through his book, Citizens, and his organisation, John is now advocating for a new way of thinking, shifting the dominant story of the individual in society from consumer to citizen, reframing the moment in which we're living as a time of huge civic opportunity, emphasising the world of possibility for countries, cities, organisations and leaders if they embrace the citizen story. John's book may well be the most important book I've read in years and I'm convinced that the story shift that he's advocating and fighting for will be absolutely pivotal if we're to overcome the meta-crisis that we're facing as humans and as a planet. Now, over to John. Welcome, John. Welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to uh, getting stuck in, being part of it. Good. Right. Well, let's get started. So we've established, um, I've established with the introduction, um, what you currently do and for where you come from and your backstory. But let's get started with two, the two big fundamental questions. Who are you and who or what made you, you? I mean, I'm, I'm a, I have my my little bio line. I'm an activist, a strategist, and a citizen. That could come straight out of an ad agency brief. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, I, I think it's taken me quite a, quite a long time to become who I am, and I think I think uh, I think the story I would tell in my life is is really someone who kind of have had every advantage in the book. Uh, like, I I was you know, not, not to the extent of being sort of eaten public school or anything like that. I sometimes think I was very lucky because I was, I had a level of privilege and, 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 uh, an opportunity that, that meant that I had access to everything, but I was at least sufficiently in touch with reality that I could appreciate how fortunate I was to have these things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I like uh, trotted through a fee paying school, went to Cambridge university, uh, like, I've got all the kind of physical, I'm an athlete, I'm quite athletic. I, I rode in the, in the boat race and uh, in the reserve boat race, at least, uh, for a couple of years, I was sort of on track to be a, be a success on the terms of, of society as it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I went into the advertising industry as you, as you allude to sort of almost by accident, like not, mainly because I failed to become an Olympic athlete, which was plan A. But there was a point where I stopped growing when I was 17 or 18 and gradually everyone went past me. And I, and the, I mean, 
Ro is a big Ro is a big human being. So um, so yeah. But but being an athlete is a big part of who I am still, and and, and those things. But the but it was actually when I was in the advertising industry that I really started to ask deeper questions. And um, there are a few reasons why that started. One was one was just some of the experiences of the of the life choices of some of the people around me without going too far down the kind of madman cliches. But I think more it was it was a sort of growing growing political consciousness really. Um when I mean, the year I started working in advertising was the year of the Iraq war. Um I and then the other part and then the real the real kind of shift was down to my relationship with my my partner um we've been together since university we met when i was coaching the college girls rowing through <laughs> um and she's she's had a i would say is is more tuned in was more tuned in from an earlier age she grew up in stockport and uh, and but was also very environmentally conscious from a very young age and 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 basically in in about 2005 we went to um we went to live and work in Zambia for a year, steered by her. And uh, assumed that she's she wasn't in advertising. No, no. Jane um, went to work in consulting, uh, and then we took this we took this year together to go and to go and live and work in Zambia. And then she came back and and went to work for M and S in Plan A, and then set up a, a social enterprise. Uh, Taking credits out of the emissions trading scheme and won a load of awards for that, and then ran the ran the ran the um, carbon measurement function at the National Physical Lab Laboratory, and then and then and then has now set up and now runs a, a major climate and air quality philanthropy. So she's wow. she's she's a pretty um, my one of my one of my answers to who are you is uh, I uh, I carry the ba- bags for Jane Burston. <laughs> <laughs> And it um, keeps you on your toes. Yeah, but but it was it was that decision to go and live in Zambia for a year and really coming quite viscerally uh, into contact with the realities of climate change as far back as two thousand five, mm. two thousand six that that I think shook the shook the basis for me quite dramatically. Mm. Uh, we'll come back to that before you do. I mean, you've established very succinctly about who you are and how you reference yourself. But who or what made you you? What were the impact of your parents, siblings, mentors on that journey of transformation? So I, I you know, that line about all all happy childhoods are the same. Um, I had a I had a very happy upbringing, and I've always been very well supported by my parents and my family. Um, but I don't, I don't. I mean, I want to say this with love for them, but that that they haven't sort of steered me in in. In that sense, I think that they're a supportive presence and would have been no matter what I decided to do. I've got a question on that because, I mean, I, when you explain that trauma, and it sounds like a trauma, a traumatic experience of the, that awakening of the the insidious impact of advertising um, on individuals and collectively on society. You something steered you in a completely different direction. There, there must be some set of values that were in stilled in you at an early age to give you that sense of belief in yourself that gave you the courage to manifest this new life and this new vision and bring this vision to life. Do you think there was anything in looking back at the 
the impact of your parents or your upbringing on giving you that 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 inner will? Honestly, no. I, I think it's because more. And I, the reason I ask, yeah. and a reason to contextualize it, when I read your book and you talked about reading Naomi Klein, in when with no logo, I read the same book. I was on vacation at the time with my partner, and I was sitting and I was working at Gray at the time, and I read it. I just went, "Holy shit! What am I doing with my life?" Yeah. Now I didn't do anything. I, 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 you know, I'm okay. I've walked away from advertising now, but it's taken me a long time. I'm certainly not having the impact you're having, but it, I didn't do what you did. So I'm, I'm intrigued just to understand what was it gave you that, that, that uh, I'm saying courage or inner strength to realize. Cause a lot of people, I know a lot of people in advertising feel the same way. I mean, honestly though, I, I think it's more a, a question of a combination of, chance and I, I see it more as external factors than internal i don't i i i um so what what actually happened really was that uh having come back from from zambia like having some of the experiences reading some of these books i then i was back at a desk in an advertising agency and i was trying to do i was trying to work on better stuff right like i was mm-hmm. i was doing work that was trying to sell train instead of plane, trying to sell fair trade chocolate, you know, all the, all the kind of ethical consumption stuff. And it was at that point, I got a phone call one day uh, from someone who was trying to sell me a research product, a woman called Karina Gaffney, uh, who now works at Lang Kelly Chase Foundation, actually. And, and she tried to sell me this product for about three minutes and then gave up. And we ended up having a two-hour conversation about the uh, master's degree that she just completed. And within a week, I'd, I'd signed up for this for this course. It was a combination of that course, which was essentially sort of two years of group therapy, um, yeah. uh, and particularly one person on that, uh, one of the tutors on that course, a woman called Chris Seeley, who is who was she died a few years ago, and, and she was one of the most important people in my life for sure, who held the space for me to, I think, sort of. Ki- I keep my hand in the flame of this stuff. Like, I think you're right. I think even back then, so many of us were, were starting to ask these questions, but we didn't have any spaces in which to keep holding onto them. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yes, there is a, of course, and, and like I say, I want to give my parents and my partner huge credit in, the, in, in, in for everything I've done and they deserve it, but, but, but more in the sense that they have been deeply supportive. They weren't, I don't think I, I don't think I took any more from them than than many of my peers would have taken in sense of, of values and so on. I think I think and look, this is really important to me in a lot of ways because it's I don't I don't agree with the idea that there are a few exceptional people who can change things. I I I think we're all I think we're all citizens by nature. And I think that the 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 problem is the story that surrounds us. And I was I was fortunate enough to have the conditions to sort of stumble into the conditions. Yes, of course, I was inquiring to some degree and I had this thing about like, what are we doing to ourselves? We're telling ourselves we're consumers all the time. Like I had, I had started to form that question, but no more than you had and no more than others. Mm-hmm. Had. And it was, it's though, and I guess in many ways, what I'm, what I, what I'm trying to do with my life and my work now is say, what if we all lived in the context that supported us to, to live out our values properly instead of a context that, that said that continually shushed us this idea that actually what those 3000 
10,000 by more recent estimates commercial message a day are doing is, is, is continually repeating a message that says, that's basically saying shush little people just go shopping. Like, shh, stay in your box, stay in your box, stick to your bit. Your role is to pursue self-interest and that is your contribution. And all I have been able to do really is, is stay in the questioning with the help of people like Chris and then with the, with the backing, with the background support of, of my family and friends. Hmm. Cool. No, that's good. I'm glad that's, uh, that's really clear. So you've sort of, um, moved on to answering, um, the work you're doing, what you're working to achieve before you leave this mortal coil. I've spoken to a lot of people recently about your book citizens and your, how you're trying to reframe our story away from consumer. And it's certainly aside from all the issues with the ad industry, we're facing bigger issues. I mean, I think this, this, there is a great unraveling, whether we say we're living in liminal times, it feels like these confluence of factors from, from climate, technological AI, global geopolitical instability, they're all having an impact. It feels like our system is being torn apart. This idea that you've got goes beyond what a lot of people talk about is, oh, we need a new system. We need a new political party. We need to reinvent democracy or kill democracy. It's refreshing the sort of the, the, the way that you've reframed this alternative approach. So for people that haven't read your book and maybe haven't heard your interview, could you just give a, a, a synopsis of what it is you're working to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think to the way you framed it, um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the concept of polycrisis, right? That there are all these many crises happening at once. I quite like, there's a guy called Jonathan Rosen, who I've done some work with, who has, the, who talks about meta crisis instead of polycrisis. That he's like, actually, there's a, there's a single, there is a, an overall, an overarching or an underpinning crisis that, that gives rise to all of these things. And that I think is the level at which I'm trying to work. Um, and, and, and for me, that crisis, I understand the meta crisis to be a crisis of story because I believe that we are trapped in what I call the consumer story, which is a, a story that says that the right thing for us to do is to pursue self interest, to, to look out, to choose the option that suits us best from those that are offered on the basis that individual self interest will add up to collective interest and deliver the best society as a whole. Like it's not a, it's not an evil, it's not, it's not an evil story in the sense of deliberately seeking bad outcomes. It's an evil story in the sense of leading to bad outcomes and portraying itself as good. Uh, and, and that story is itself the cause of, of all, at least many direct cause of, of the poly crisis. So we, we have a crisis of loneliness and surprise, surprise, we have a crisis of loneliness because we're working from a story that says that we're independent, isolated individuals. We have a crisis of inequality. Surprise, surprise, given that we're working from a story that says that, so, so, that society's a ladder you climb and a competition. Like, that's going to give rise to inequality. We have an ecological crisis. And surprise, surprise, we have an ecological crisis because we're working from a story that says we're separate from nature and should take from it, right? Like, of course, we have these things. And what also follows is that we're not going to be able to solve those crises from within the story we're working from. And so... In that moment, so this isn't just about advertising, right? Like advertising, I sometimes think of it like as the as almost like the priesthood of a religion. It's not the priesthood that's to blame; it's the it's the religion, right? But but the priesthood has an extreme kind of agency in this. So, like, in, 
and I, I like I don't want to pursue this metaphor too far, but it's it's through, if you look through history, it's been the, it's been defrocked priests who've done quite a bit to tear <laughs> religions down, right? So, but but the I guess the other thing that's worth saying by way of a brief synopsis of the kind of the the, the thesis of the book is that in this moment in time, that story, that consumer story, is collapsing. What is happening as that as that occurs is is two things. One is that uh, a much more dangerous and much worse story is raising its head, which is what I call the subject story, which is essentially the authoritarian story, the the, the God-given few know, who know best and will tell us what to do to create the best outcomes for society as a whole. That is the the default option. And that was the dominant story in human society for a very long time. And also there is another possibility uh, that has also been there and is arguably the oldest story of humanity, which is what I call the citizen story, which is a an approach that says actually the right thing to do is to get involved, to contribute your ideas, energy and resources to the pursuit of the best society as a whole and to encourage others to do the same, To on the basis that actually all of us are smarter than any of us. And it's, and it's precisely by putting together that collective will that collective intelligence that collective artistry that we will create the best society as a whole and 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 what i'm trying to do in my work is uh is celebrate where that story is is emerging um and provide a service to that emergent story by offering some language and making some distinctions in relation to it so that more people find it easier to see and distinguish and therefore step into. And particularly, I see my role as being to address people in positions of power because I think that, um, well, not least because I, I look and sound like them. Mm-hmm. So I am, it's easier for me to be heard by them than many of the other people who are speaking from the citizen story. And so if I can play that role, I can help them to open the space for others. And that, and that I think, so it's partly because that's who I am and who I sound like and what I look like, but it's also partly because I do see that as a critical intervention point. If if those in positions of power in the existing story do not open the way to the new story, and and I mean that from the best of intentions sometimes, if they think that their role is to save us, but if they if they keep if they keep the rest of us out, then what they will do is they will force the world into the arms of the subject story again. Um, so yeah, so that's the work I'm trying to do, naming, connecting, showing away, particularly kind of nudging and pushing at the leaders, so-called leaders mm-hmm. to, to truly become leaders. You've created an organization to, to lead this, this, this charge or this change called the New Citizens Project. And it, and it does, I mean, it does feel like a global call for collective action. Uh, and as you have this line where you say, that all of us are smarter than any of us, but I, to encourage us to harness the ideas, energy, and resources of everyone to create better outcomes. I mean, you've been on this on this journey for some time, and you're trying to nudge and influence existing leaders to go down to not to allow the to allow the subject story to emerge uh, or reemerge, and you're trying to direct them towards empowering the assistant story. I know you've talked at length about Audrey Tang and in, in Taiwan as an example of how it can happen at a country scale, but you must have seen in, on, in your travels some incredibly inspiring 
examples of where this story is emerging, where people are doing, as you say, that, that all of us are smarter than any of us. Could you just give a couple of examples of people to, so they're aware of where this is happening? Yeah, I mean, I can go on for hours on this, but I'll try and just pick a couple of um, s- relatively simple ones to 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 open up, and maybe I'll give you I'll give you one of my favourites, and then one of my most recent uh, experiences. Yeah, I'd be good. Um, so one of my favourites, just for its beauty and simplicity, is um, uh, what's been happening in Reykjavik in Iceland over the last ten fifteen years, um, and it started with the the Icelandic financial crash and. And there was a thing called the pots and pans revolution. People were banging their pots and pans. And, and there was this whole vibe of like, we can't leave. There was huge elite corruption, a real vibe of like, we can't leave running the country to these, to others anymore. We have to get involved ourselves. And there was a big return of people from who'd left the country back to, back to Iceland, including a couple of game designers who, who, li- who were living in the States. And they came back and, and put their skills to bear on designing a, a platform called better Reykjavik and they challenged the mayoral candidates to adopt this platform as a way for as a, as a way of building their manifestos or, or opening communication with citizens in the next mayoral election in Reykjavik and one did uh, the candidate for the best party which was new party from nowhere and he won and he brought in the platform into the running of the city and and essentially it's a really simple reddit style platform where people anyone could propose an idea for how the city could be better they're sorted into categories upvoted and downvoted so you can comment but you can't uh troll there's some really nice design features in it and the, and there's a commitment and the the, the the then mayor instituted a commitment that the city council would debate and and give a public response to the top ideas on a regular basis i think monthly and that institution that has survived his his term and into the next and is now sort of institutionalized into the running of the city of Reykjavik and has led into a participatory budgeting interface and all these sorts of things. So, so that's just a really lovely example. And, and I think what I draw out of that is this idea of, um, the really clear commitment and the structure of power, which is to say, it's not saying the top voted ideas, the most popular ideas will be enacted. It's saying the most popular ideas will be discussed and given due credit, and then there will be a public response to them. It is a respectful kind of relationship. And if they can't be adopted, then we'll tell you why not, and we'll suggest a way forward, and da-da-da. And, and that that kind of clarity of conception, of that clarity of relationship with power is a really good way of, of helping people understand that what I'm not talking about is just like, hell, vote up everything, user-generated society, go. It's like there's a, there is a design challenge in this work. That's really important to underline. So that's one example. And um, the other, so that's, a, and that's a sort of the inside of the insider power opening up, uh, with a bit of outsider probing. The, the, the other example I'll share with you, my most recent, uh, and most joyful in, in many ways is I've just come across an organization called PFG Doncaster, uh, in, in Doncaster in Yorkshire. And PFG stands for People Focus Group. And this organization started when uh, a social worker um, uh, was basically told that she couldn't stand up for the rights of her clients as they were, as, the, as she was forced to turn them uh, in standing up for payments that they were due. And she couldn't, she certainly couldn't introduce them to one another and help them to sort of fight this because she had to deal with them individually. 
So she quit her job and held a meeting where she brought these people, the six or seven people together and uh, talked to them about how they, how she might be able to help them to fight for the payments that they were due. And at that meeting, what happened was that they began to offer each other support. These people who were supposed to only be recipients of support started to offer one another support in this period of time. And the social worker, Kelly, her name is, was, was just overwhelmed by this. And it grew and grew and more and more people sort of came to these meetings. And, and now, uh, 10 years on, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a space called the wellness center in, in Doncaster. There's, They've got a, a series of satellite, what they call bumping spaces. And the art, the whole orientation of this organization is that everyone is a helper and needs to be helped. And, and there's a guy called Glenn who's, who's one of the kind of key. He's a volunteer. He's a, he's a, he's a peer supporter. He's a member of this community and he's a director of the organization. And Glenn has He's got all the challenges in many ways you could possibly imagine. He's, He's got, he's been diagnosed with personality disorders with, with autism. He's got sleep apnea, diabetes, asthma. And, and Glenn, he was, he was, he was being seen by something like seven different services before he became involved in PFG Doncaster. He is now a net contributor. Mm -hmm. He is a director of the organization. He gives conference speeches to thousands of police officers to help them understand how to communicate with people with mental health issues. Like this is this is such an unbelievable articulation, and Glenn is one of many. You walk into this this organisation, you walk into the the room, and you're in the most homely environment you could possibly imagine, with people just talking to one another as equals. And 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 this this is like this is the thing I'm saying. Like the 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 deep insight at the heart of this is we are all citizens. We all we all need agency, and we all want to contribute. And, and it is precisely when we are denied the opportunity to contribute that the rage sets in and the problems begin. Mm-hmm. And what we have done in a consumer society is we have constructed this, this idea of people as, as wanting to be, as selfish and wanting to be served. And we have turned local government into service providers. And in doing so, we have, we have denied so many people agency that we have created the challenges for ourselves in many ways. And it, and it all began from good reason and from good intention and, and all, and so on. And, and, and it was better than what came before with the subject story and the kind of the paternalism and authoritarianism. And we have to do better. It does sound, when you're talking about the, the PFG Doncaster, I just interviewed Math Potts and it sounds like it's a, it's another. It very so it would sit side by side with Cam- uh, Camarados and the public living rooms, as he said. All people really need used to the agency, but they just need per- to find purpose and and a sense of um, community um, and friends and the power, the, the the transformative impact that giving people agency can have is just inspiring. And when you hear stories like that, it it, it is so uplifting. You just wonder how can we. As I know, again, you talk in the book about if you if you were to take the the creative, transformative power of advertising and agencies and direct it to having the same impact on the citizen story, the potential. How can we start to share stories like this, other than through your book and the work you're doing with the New Citizen Project? Is it 
you know, I'm just, because I'm, one of the things I think I said to you when we first spoke is I believe that there's so many great things like this happening in the world, but the discoverability is really hard because you, you can't just Google it. Well, maybe, maybe with AI it'll happen, but you can't discover all the people that are doing amazing things. You wouldn't know where to start to discover if someone was in Austin, for example, in Texas and wanted to do something similar, they wouldn't know how to find PFG Doncaster and find out what Glynn's doing and learn from Glynn. So it's, I'm, I'm intrigued as to how do we build a, a network where people can start to share their experiences and uh, have that impact that you talked about in the book. I mean, this, this is a very live uh, question for me. I, I mean, so there's, there's, a, there's a theoretical framing that I really like for this challenge, which is um, uh, originally put forward by an organization called the Bacana Institute. And Margaret Wheatley was, is one of the key. Called what? The Bacana Institute, B-E-R-K-A-N-A. Okay. Um, and they call it two loops uh, as a theory of change. And, and the, essentially, you, if you imagine uh, a sort of a, a semicircle, um, like a, like a, like a, like a grimace, a, a, an upset face, and then a semicircle like a smile, slightly offset with it. Um, they're basically saying that in any given moment, or in moments of change, where you where you, where you really are is that there is a there is an old system that is in decline, and that's the sort of that's the the, the declining yeah. line, the, the the line that's risen and then is dropping, and there is a new system that is forming, which is the which is the the sort of the the line that is smiling, the line that is. That is that is dropping and then rising, and uh, mm -hmm. and 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 these li these lines don't meet. They don't flow into one another. They're offset with one another because in times of deep change, what's happening is that one system has to. There is there is no. They, they have this line. They talk about there's no fundamental change without some discontinuity. Like the old system has to break for the new to to really take shape. And yet there is work to be done on that new system in that moment in time. So part of what you're saying, I think, is that the, the discoverability is low because we are still looking from within the, from within the consumer story. That is still the narrative that surrounds and structures our lives. And, and so in that moment, um, as that new story is, or, or very old story is starting to gain coherence and visibility, Wheelie talks about there being kind of four key tasks. She talks about naming, connecting, uh, illustrating and no three key tasks: naming, connecting, and illustrating. And so, naming is really giving some language that enables you to see something as whole and see it as distinct. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do with with offering the language of citizen. And and really fascinatingly, I'm not the only one who's using that language in this way. So, in the in the states, to your to your context, um. Eric Liu in, in Seattle is talking, has, has this organization called Citizen University where he's talking about very much the yeah. same thing. Perhaps most excitingly in my mind, um, there's a guy called Baratunde Thurston has a podcast called How to Citizen where he's using the yeah. word citizen as a verb. And, and all three of us and many others are talking about the same thing. This idea of a kind of a distribution of power and agency, a collective, uh, sense of how we build the best the best possible future. And, and so that's naming. Then, then, as I say, there's connecting and illustrating. And that's like, how do we, having named and offered a language to this, this emerging thing? Cause it's not just people doing good stuff, right? There's lots of people doing 
nice things and good things. The citizening or the citizen story is a is is a particular kind of thing. It's it's rooted in power in a different way. Um, and that and so the next task is how do we connect this up? How do we bring it together? How do we how do we help those involved in it see one another and be part of it? Uh, and, and, and then illustrate is like, okay, how do we show that it can become a dominant system, that it can, that it can actually shape a whole society? And, and so that's a lot of what I'm thinking about working on at the moment with Baratunde and others. But, but what I would also say is I don't think that that's the, I, I don't think this has to be a kind of incremental like gathering and building. I think there is a, there is another truth in this work, which means that the, the shift can happen much more dramatically and much more quickly. And that truth is this thing that I've said once or twice already that we are citizens by nature. And so actually, if we can find the moments when the story can shift, when the story that is, that is, that is told by those in positions of power and influence can shift, then the society is ready to change dramatically, very quickly. And so, so the example of this, you've, you've alluded to my, my telling of the Taiwan story in the book. And I won't, I won't go into loads of detail on it here, but, but there is a moment in, in what has happened in Taiwan over the last decade where, um, where essentially, uh, uh, a citizen story, uh, uh, an idea of people as participants in shaping a society, what happened actually was that there was a, a protest moment when the where an Occupy style protest where the protesters were, were using participatory democracy tools to do what the politicians who should have been in that space should have been doing. And that so visibly, so dramatically when that, when footage of that was shared all over the country, what that dramatically showed was that there was a different way for us to be, for a different way for people to be in Taiwan. And then when, when the speaker of the parliament, he, he endorsed that protest. He refused to beat the protesters out and instead said, this is what should be happening here. And in that moment, everything changed. Like the doorway was, the, the, mm-hmm. the path was, was chosen. And within six years of that moment, you had, you had Taiwan's COVID response being the most successful anywhere in the world and being characterized by, by the three principles, fast, fun and fair, and essentially being an entirely crowdsourced national response. And like I say, pretty much the most successful anywhere in the world. And, and so that, and that change can happen very dramatically. And maybe just, I can I often contrast now that, that moment in Taiwan and what happened as a result with what happened in most countries and definitely in the UK in the first wave of COVID when actually we were doing it. Like people were mutual aid groups, street WhatsApp groups. Uh, these sorts of things were happening all over the world. And yet government response was either subject story, lockdown, stay at home, we'll look after you, or consumer story, go back out shopping, here's some cash to spend, eat out to help out was the name of the campaign in the UK, like mind-blowingly obvious co-option of citizen instinct in service of consumer story. And, and remember what I said, like, we are surrounded. We are not starting from a blank slate. We're starting from a world where the consistent background narrative, the, the white noise of our lives is saying, shush, little people, just go shopping. Mm-hmm. And, 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 
And so many, yes, we have to do some building. Yes, we have to do some connecting. Yes, we have to do some storytelling. But actually, if we can just shut that voice up <laughs> and, and get it not to be preaching to us in that way, it's, this again is it's back to the analogy with religion, right? Like the most insistent religions in the world are calling their adherents to prayer nowhere near as often as the consumer story. And, and, and we, we know in our history how, how difficult it has been for, for human societies to see a way beyond a particular religious conception. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the best analogy, I think, to the, to the trap we're in at the moment and the work of breaking it. Mm -hmm. So that panacea to problems through consumer purchasing power um, is, is clearly the problem. But you've set out a series of steps that people can actually take to be more active citizens. Could you describe what those steps are? Sure, yeah. And again, like I say, I don't think it's just from the side of the individual that, the, that, this, that this comes. But as individuals, I think the, the steps go first. Like, I, I like to play a game called Spot the Story. Like, having named subject, consumer, and citizen, like look for where those show up in your life. When are you in those different modes? And, and purely by noticing you're, you're, you're taking a pretty big step forward because you're not just unconsciously going with the flow of the story. The second mm -hmm. step is to, to choose home, like choose a space, a community, a geographic or workplace or, or community of interest, like anything really, but choose a community that you want to, you want to commit to and be an, be a citizen of, and then, and then find the others because like you, the, the, the whole key to this is, is true agency is always collective. It's not individual. And that's, that's another powerful lie of the consumer story because the consumer story tells us if we want to be good, we've got to change all of our purchasing decisions before we can say anything to anyone else. And that is the best way to silence a movement that I've ever heard of. So, so spot the story, choose home, find the others, and then decide together what to do first. Um, and it really doesn't matter what that first thing is, as long as it's decided on together. Mm -hmm. And like, I could give examples, like, I mean, Kelly ho hosting that meeting for P that was the seed of PFG Doncaster. Uh, I could talk to you about my friend Billy in Grimsby, who got fed up at a meeting and called for a litter pick that's now turned into an organization that's basically a social housing provider, a publisher, a creative festival holder, all in what's supposed to be one of the most downtrodden neighborhoods in the country. I could talk about Kennedy Adede in Nairobi, who started with a, with a game of football and, and, and has built an organization called Shining Hope for Communities that that not only got two and a half million people through the pandemic, but also in 2021 hosted the, the first ever world communities forum. Like I could, I could go on and on, but the, the key was always, despite the fact that I'm naming individuals, the key was always them finding others and deciding together, not them imposing a dream on others. And so those are the four steps, spot the story, choose home, find the others decide together what to do first it does feel i mean i know you you talk about taiwan that's a um a, a, a when i say global it's a a national example of the citizen story emerging but a lot of the other ones you talk about they are very hyper local and community based is that because people do you think that's because people believe it there's a, a belief driving it that it is or a desire and a belief to 
to, like that you say, talk about the guy in Grimsby, to just go, I'm not, I'm not standing for this anymore. I'm taking it upon myself to do something about this. And therefore, the people see in their, at their hyper local level, change is possible. Whereas at a national level, it's much harder or more challenging. And, and the probably somehow you've got to co-opt a person in a leadership position, like you said, the speaker of the house to trigger that, that change at scale. I mean, either trigger or get out of the way, both of which are active mm. decisions. Yeah. But look, I mean, firstly, what I, I, the first thing I want to say is, is it's not just hyperlocal, right? Like, I mean, the Reykjavik example, that's a whole city. The mm. cities of Paris and Brussels now both have standing citizens' assemblies as part of their governance structures. Those are cities of many millions of people. Taiwan's a nation of 23 million, you mentioned. Uh, I could talk about like with flaws, but the, the process in Chile where they, they effectively tried to crowdsource a constitution. That's a, that's a full national process. Portugal had a national participatory budget in 2018. Like there are, there are, I'm not pretending that this is a, you know, the old technology adoption curve where there's the chasm. Mm, like I'm not pretending this is mainstream yet, but I, I would make a pretty good case that it's early adopter rather than. Just innovator. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You just, just driving it towards early majority. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm working on crossing the chasm. That's my, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But the, um, Um, but, but sorry, just, just to, to your point there, I I think, hmm. so while I would contest the, the, the frame a little bit, I I do also think it's true that there is a parent starting from where we are. Mm -hmm. And I would then say, and the, this is happening everywhere. Like everywhere I go, particularly in the UK, because that's where I've been looking around. I've been to Brig and Doncaster and Sheffield and Grimsby and Colville in Leicestershire and uh, and Hastings and like all of these places that people think that there's nothing happening and there's and it's happening. Um, and so the other way I would think about it is like this is that connecting up moment is is like the tinder's dry, right? Like it's, which is maybe an unfortunate metaphor because it suggests a kind of violent reaction when actually I think what we're talking about is a, is a, is, is the, is the peaceful alternative. Um, one of the ways I was talking about this the other day was like, I, I think, I think part of the case I'm making to people in positions of power at the moment is I'm saying, look, I want you to think of yourself as being inside a tower. And I want you to understand that that tower has two doors, one on either side. And on one side, there's a group of people who are knocking politely on that door, who have thought very hard about how you might open that door and how you might invite people in and how you might do things differently. That's one option. On the other side of the tower, coming towards the other door, are a bunch of people with pitchforks and torches and, and frankly, one of them has got one of them is wearing bull's horns and a cape, right? Like, and and they are not they are trying to tear you down. Do not mistake the two sides of the tower for one. And that that I think is 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 the great challenge in this moment. The, the people who scare me most aren't the people with pitchforks and torches. Honestly, I I understand their anger. The people who scare me most are the people inside the tower who think that their role is to fix the world for us. Because they can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great metaphor. Um, you've 
created, um, or you've, you're certainly proposing a, a, something called a, an alternative to the consumer confidence index called the citizen confidence index. Could you uh, maybe discuss this as a, a measure of the where we are in the terms of national global belief in the citizen story? Yeah, I mean the and its power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the the fact that there is such a thing as the consumer confidence index, which by the, I mean, I'm sure others have talked about, and I know they have that the GDP was only. Uh, codified, invented really in 1937, and yet it's become this sort of arbiter of the success of nations. Well, really interestingly, consumer confidence was only first articulated, I think, in 63 or around, like in the 60s. And the reason why it was articulated was because in the first kind of drop-off of the post-war economic boom, they there was a hypothesis developed for, like, we need an indicator that can help, like, be a bit more sensitive than GDP. And so consumer confidence was created as this carrier of the narrative that people's contribution to their national economies is to consume. And, and this is the point, like measures are incredibly powerful carriers of narrative. And, and the fact is that the consumer confidence index has become embedded in the kind of, uh, the measurement infrastructure of every nation in the world, really. And, and what it's doing is carrying that, that, that view of people's contribution. This is why every time there's a report of a nation going into recession, the next item on the news in order to make that intelligible to the consumer is an interview and some Vox pops from a shopping center, right? Like that's every time. And, and that story is telling us again, shish little people just go shopping. So the idea behind a consumer, a citizen confidence index, so you've got me doing it now. The idea behind a citizen <laughs> is to say like, what if we had a carrier of a different narrative? What if we were measuring the extent to which people feel, the extent to which Glynn feels like a contributor rather than a drain, the extent to which we all feel agency, the, the extent to which we feel able to make the contribution we're capable of and, and the condition, the presence of the conditions for that to be possible. If we had such a measure in the kind of measurement infrastructure of our societies, that would make it so much easier for the people inside the tower to see us knocking politely. And so it's a, it's quite a good example of, of the work I'm trying to do at the moment, because it's like, how can we, what are the systemic interventions, the kind of the, the, the ways we can mess with the language of the existing systems to mm -hmm. unlock and, and enable this, this story, this alternative story to take hold and, and, and measures the goals of a system are a really powerful example of that. Um, I've heard you talk about the reaction you sometimes get from people in the US, whether they be media personalities or interviewers, when they maybe pigeonhole you in the traditional way people like to put people in boxes and say, oh, well, you must be anti-growth or you must be a socialist or communist because that's a traditional narrative one that must be frustrating but given that when you talk about trying to sort of get leaders without giving them that story you got these two doors you're also got to be speaking to leaders in industry who are maybe a bit resistant to change now there are people like bracken darrell who from logitech who i interviewed recently who is maybe not using the language of the the citizen story but is certainly 
enacting a lot of mechanisms that would sort of set him on that path. I mean, how do you engage leaders in business? Do you are you going to are you trying to do it individually? Or are you trying to go to the likes of the uh, the World Economic Forum and sp- speak there? Because I think that for me it feels like and again coming talking from the sort of the old advertising sort of uh, background, you want to you want to accelerate change and therefore you want to get to the key decision makers and and create change to get to that point where you say, as you describe those those two systems of the the inverted sort of smile it feels that there there is such an urgency yeah. the what are you doing with the new system project rather than going to individual leaders but to do it collectively i mean there's a couple of answers to that one is that i am i've been working really hard to try and make sure that this these ideas this story does get into those spaces and and mckinsey put the book in their top five books of, of last summer um financial times has reviewed it i did an episode of the world economic forums book club podcast um so i'm, I'm getting it into those spaces that's part of it mm. i think that is principally because I, I i i have a bit of an issue with the with the whole degrowth framing thing because it just feels so um and the whole anti-capitalism and post-capitalism and these sorts of things because more from a narrative place than anything else, because they're all defining themselves in opposition to things rather than defining themselves on their own terms. And I think that that mm-hmm. automatically creates enemies for them. Whereas like I've always been a much bigger fan of, um, there's a phrase, a concept of qualitative growth. Uh, what's his name? The, the, there's a biologist who's, who's a biologist and economist. Who's very interesting. I can't, uh, I can't remember his name. Um, but the, the the idea of qualitative growth I find much more compelling. So the basic thesis is any any organism goes through two phases of growth: quantitative growth where it grows in scale, and then qualitative growth where it matures in quality. And I think talking about qualitative mm-hmm. growth is a is a much more powerful way of of articulating these things, because what we're saying, and like when it comes down to a tangible level for any given organization, what we're saying, what I'm saying is, like don't just increase material throughput, like involve people, build relationships with people, a, a, a relationship, any a, a purposeful business, a business that's trying to do something in the world beyond just make as much cash as possible, which most, like quite a few do, has an opportunity mm-hmm. to develop a much deeper relationship with its customers than a transactional one. Transactional relationships where people just buy from you are always going to be shallow citizen relationships people where where people are buying into the purpose of what you're trying to do in the world are much deeper and much more resilient and and therefore much more viable and and i think uh, to give you an example like i sometimes think about nike uh you're we're wearing a nike mm-hmm. t-shirt on our cool like nike is a really mm-hmm. interesting organization the the original the the phrasing of purpose that's in that organization is unleashing the athlete and everyone you can totally do that in a citizen story like in fact, you can do it much better in a citizen story than you can in a consumer story. In a consumer story, I would argue Nike has failed abysmally to unleash the athlete and everyone because what they've actually done mm-hmm. is is impossibilize sporting achievement and then try and sell people this physical stuff off the back of impossibilizing sporting achievement. Whereas what you could actually do is be position that organization, that brand as something that really does enable everyone to find the athlete in themselves and do it through supporting collectives. I, I would, I'm, 
and the stones. Well, that that's an example, right? The Orchard Street Runner runners in New yes. York. It's street running. That's it's almost like punk punk racing. They just pop up and decide that you know we're going to have races, and you just get masses of people emerging from this uh, from the all corners of the city to run, and it's supported by night. Well, this is the thing, right? We often we find when we start talking to organisations, I've never heard of Orchard Street Runners before. You just said that, and but like so many organisations have this story manifesting in them, despite their existing structures and processes. And so, a lot of the time, all we're really doing is saying, "Well, what if you designed for that to happen, and for more of that mm. to happen? What mindset would you have to adopt? What processes would you have to adopt?" And so, I mean, it's just that. So, it's not a so part of the answer is just that it, it, at a theoretical level, it's just saying it's not a direct challenge. It's a, it's a yes and, not a no but. And, and, and then I think that the other part of it is we, we, we always try and do our work in a way and increasingly are trying to do our work in a way that is convening and sharing a story. We, we love to bring together multiple organizations. I'm, I'm trying to, well, I'm hoping to be working on something with, um, with Cranfield University actually to, to, to convene a group of, commercial businesses to say like how can we do inverted commas marketing in a in a different way in a way that is rooted in building relationships rather than just selling stuff and i think that i'm super excited by where that might go this is this is all a kind of a, an ongoing learning experiment i think one of one of the things i love I, I love about the work we're doing and i think that gives people real space to find their place in it is like no one knows how like what i'm able to say what we're able to say coming from where we are is no one knows what the future looks like i get so hacked off with the with the like we have the solutions we just need to roll them out do we fools like no one knows what the future looks like and that is deeply empowering because that means that we all have a place in creating it there's a lovely brian eno who's wrote the foreword for the book and is just a lovely human and, a, and now a friend, oddly, uh, like being mates with the megastar. But he, he has this lovely thing. He <laughs> says, he says, there is not going to be one highway to the future. We're all going to be figuring out our way through the forest. And that means we all need to be, we all need our creativity. Like for someone who is like Brian, having produced Bowie to you 2 to whatever, like to be such a, a, a star in the kind of creative firmament and then for him to be saying no it's not about that it's not about the stars it's about the creativity in all of us i think is a really powerful expression of what this is about brilliant no that's a a a great explanation of it um i didn't know about that you know quote that's wonderful just as an aside i heard a really interesting interview with kevin kelly the uh editor one of the founders of wired and he was talking about growth and, and again, criticizing the degrowth mo- uh, movement and said that what we, he believes that what we need to focus on is what he called exotropic growth, which is increasing complexity, better quality, um, better rather than more. So he gave the example of wine. He said, you know, we're always going to continue to produce wine, but instead of producing more wine, let's p- focus on producing better quality wine. And if we start thinking about what we're, our production is just better, less, but better quality, he said we can still grow. And I'm sure there's a lot more thinking behind it, but I thought it was an interesting way of, of, of just reframing the way we think about, uh, growth. Because it does feel like there's this 
binary. We either say we'd stop growing or we, or, uh, or we continue to grow and destroy the planet. And there is an alternative. There's a third way. Yeah. In, in defense of the degrowth mob, and I, and like, I don't mean to be too, too negative towards them because I agree with an awful lot of it, but actually that is in what they're saying. It's like there's some things that need to stop, some things that need to grow, and some things that need to change. And I think I kind of prefer that. Look, well, I, I, in many ways, I, I agree with their prescription. I just, I just want to reframe it, and it's slightly. Well, they need reframe branding because degrowth doesn't really do them any well, favors. It's a bit like defund the police. Arguably, yeah, but the pro- but the thing is, I, I don't. I, I sort of go with them on substance more than I do with Kevin Kelly. I just, I hear things like that, and I do feel a bit like, well, of course you can say that, can't you, Mister Mister the billion pounds? Like, of course we should produce less wine and better wine because. I could afford to drink very good wine. <laughs> it's like screw you, dude. Like I, I, I and but it is that uh, the problem with it is he's still looking at it from a consumption perspective, right? And so, and so I'm more like, how do we uh, like what we need to grow is people being producers, people being participants, people being involved, rather than like that. One of the other ways I think about it is like this isn't. But the economic challenge and the, the material consumption challenge actually isn't a material consumption challenge. It's a democracy challenge. Like if people are, have more genuine agency in shaping the societies that are part of as citizens, then we will have less of a meaning hole to pour that we need to pour stuff into. Like that's more where I'm coming from. Well, from an organizational standpoint, by the very nature of inviting people to become participants in organizations like you talk about the potential of Nike, there's a desire for more innovation. There's a, a, a desire, so-called desire for more diversity and inclusion in organizations. There's a desire for more purposeful business and a desire to create more positive brand equity around purpose and it does feel like that what you're talking about is a mechanism for organizations to achieve all these so-called challenges by creating more of embracing a a, a citizen story yeah in many ways i think i think of these sorts of these sorts of things as sort of hesitant steps in this direction like Uh we're still trying to we know we need to involve people it's a bit like orchard street runners right like these popping up yeah. because they're who we are and yet unless we fully step into that they they're always going to be the kind of exceptions and there will be those who feel particularly as the world gets scarier which is going to there will be more and more people who are who are so threatened by that that they that they join the join the pitchforks and and torches and by the way like the 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 really scary thing is that the the pitchfork and torches group are, mm. are, have under, have started to understand the power of participatory thinking, the the lure of agency, and have started to co-opt it. Like QAnon, when you walk mm. anywhere near QAnon, when you when you click on a few pages, when you click on a few links, you immediately feel needed. Like they, they the, mm. the the opening gambit pretty much is we need you to help solve these mysteries. You you. Your, your contribution is needed. And that, like I say, the, the, the allure of that in the context of the people in the tower saying, shush, little people just go shopping. We know your selfish little gits really <laughs> is incredibly powerful. 
and and therefore incredibly dangerous. So it's like, yes, we're we're sort of stumbling into this stuff, and the people and those those people you're talking about, I think, are in the tower, and they're trying to go like, we need to be more inclusive, and we need to whatever, but we we're still trying to hold on to the control and the story and the whatever. It's like, guys, you've got to open the door. Like, you can't you can't do this to people and for people. You got you got to you got to get Glenn in. You you talk in the book about um. It- as far as the new system project, you talk about three P's, like we have the old four P's or went to seven P's at one point in marketing. You talk about purpose, uh, platform and prototype as the three P's of what, of what you're doing. On top of just the urgency of the pressure of the two doors or the pressure of the people on the people in the tower, there's also a certain urgency because of what's happening with AI and the uncertainty of where we're going in the future there. So could you maybe just explain the three Ps and how organizations can embrace those as a way to a better future, particularly a future where there is deep uncertainty over AI? Yeah. I mean, so the three Ps model, essentially, like you say, so I mean, it's really fascinating, actually, the, the origins of the four Ps. Um Again, in the aftermath of the Second World War, kind of 19, late 40s, early 50s, emerged this model, product, price, promotion, and placement, the four questions, the marketing 101, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's still there. I mean, like you say, there's a seven P's version and all that. Like, I just, I find that amusing as well. It's like the, the sort of, it's, it reminds me of those Gillette razor things where, where innovation is add another blade, right? It's like, it's not, it's not step back to first principles and ask how we might do this differently. It's, it's like, let's add another three. And, and what we're really trying to do with the, with the three P's thing is say, what, if you start from a conception of people as citizens rather than as consumers, product price, promotion and placement are really boring and really limiting and actually don't work because you can't, those are all things that you're going to define for people, not with them. So purpose platform prototype is saying, Firstly, the first question is, what are you really trying to do in the world that's so big you actually need people to do it with you? You can't do it for them. Platform is then, what are the structures and processes you you create to make it meaningful and joyful to be part of that work? Because that's the task. You've got to make it something people want to get involved in. But people are participants by nature. So it's not about easy and convenient and appealing to self-interest. It's about joyful and meaningful and appealing to contribution. And then prototype is saying, we don't, it's a bit to what I was just saying. We don't know what the society, we don't know what the output, we don't know what the new way of doing things exactly looks like. What we do know is that we'll get the best if we experiment together and we figure it out together. So that's, that's the three piece. I mean, the context of artificial intelligence is something I'm, I'm still, as all of us, getting my head around. But, yeah. um, I think the, the biggest thing I would say on this is, is that I've thought quite a lot about Marshall McLuhan, the, the Canadian media philosopher of the sixties and his, his kind of maxims. And, and he had this one. He said, first we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. And, and I've sort of taken it to mean like the story from which we build our tools will be embedded in those tools. And if we're not careful, then that will shape us back. And so, so for example, like when I first started doing this work, it was like 2014 and. Um, and the gig, what's now known as the gig economy was then known as the sharing economy it was just getting started. Right. And, and all of us 
I was at conferences where all of us were kind of going, this is going to solve everything. Like we're all going to share stuff. No one needs to own anymore. Like it's going to be more sustainable and more equitable. And, and look what happened, right? We, we built those platforms from within the consumer story. And therefore what they did is mm-hmm. they turned us all not just, they, they turned us into consumers of each other. The, the, the great promise of them was that they would replace every transaction with a relationship. And what they actually did was replace every relationship with a transaction. It's, and, and that is, that for me is the great danger of this moment of artificial intelligence. Like we're designing it from within the consumer story. There is, mm-hmm. there isn't, there is a artificial intelligence could be designed from within the citizen story. We could, we could design it and it could be governed from within the citizen story, which, which uh, an organization called Democracy Next that I'm a bit part of is, is working on. Like, how do we do global AI governance? using deliberative democracy using random selections of people like really put it really putting the people genuinely into positions of power in relation to it but the the problem for me stems from the idea that what we're doing at the moment is is we're doing whatever has a business case in the consumer story with and, and what we will build if we do that risks being an incredibly powerful tool that shapes us that stops us from being able to to step into another story. Like the, I was I was reading um, one of my favourite books, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, Aboriginal philosopher, has a book called Sand Talk. Um, the what? Talk? Sand, Sand Talk. Yeah. Uh, and in it, he, he the subtitle is something like how Indigenous thinking can save the world. And what he's saying it really is that indigenous mindsets aren't aren't codified and written down in the same way and aren't stored in the same structures. And that wisdom is precisely in many ways what we need at the moment. Like the, the, the patterns of thinking and learning that come from those deep traditions of genuinely living sustainably. But if they aren't written down, if they aren't codified, then they're not accessible to be, to be scraped and, and fed back to us. So we, we, we risk choosing, it's just one tiny example, but we're rich by, mm. by working from within this moment and by, by perceiving the existing internet as the, as the store of all wisdom and then turning everything into a derivation of that. We risk like in a way that we, we have, we haven't done because many of these cultures are still at least partially extant. But if we, if we do that, we risk, we risk making their knowledge systems, their knowledge approaches extinct in a way that I think is, is deeply problematic. Like is not pro- like it's, it's, it's possibly, it's like it's extinction of a, of, of a, of an alternative way of thinking and knowing that we, that we die, that we badly need. So I, that's the level at which I'm most con- concerned by artificial intelligence. And, the, and I think that the, the pattern of thinking that I'm trying to understand in relation to it is like, what might it be looking like if we were to design it from within a citizen story, from within an idea that actually role of intelligence is not to get to the, to the best quickest answer. The role of intelligence is like, what if it was called artificial wisdom instead of artificial intelligence? Like what would it look like in that world? That's a a question. Or, Or authentic intelligence. Or authentic wisdom. Like maybe that's, Authentic wisdom, yeah, yeah. There's a real, um, yeah. There's a real need. You maybe need to reach out to some people, uh, some, some AI experts, and start talking to them about building that 
authentic wisdom large learning model yeah i mean why not i mean if it's if it's happening if it's happening at the speed and scale that it is at the moment then you know why not start that flywheel now be a good conversation to have we're approaching in the u.s um the 2024 elections and and something i think you pointed out to me i hadn't thought about it we've got the 250th anniversary of the um uh Declaration of Independence in the U.S. coming in 2026, but there are, and there are signs of change in the U.S. Uh, that are more aligned with a more of a, a citizen story of someone like Andrew Yang and his Forward Party, which talks about a much more bottom-up approach and a together, uh, not against us set of values. I mean, what are your hopes for the U.S.? Because a lot of people listen to this are U.S. based, and I know you talked about Baratundi and the work he's doing, and also the guy in Seattle. Are you are you confident that we are the US could we could start to see some interesting examples on the scale of what you've talked about in other countries like Reykjavik and citizen assemblies and participatory democracy examples like Taiwan? Because a lot of people have lost have lost faith mm. in the US internally. Anyway, I think that's what's yeah, happening. I've had the second time someone said that to me this week. Actually, um, I mean, so. Yes, is the short answer, just to, just for, for avoidance of doubt. Like, I know, for example, that Democracy Next have, uh, have a really vibrant operation in the States. I know that there's uh, discussions in places like Seattle and, and, uh, been real hunger for it in the Bay Area. And so that there's, and on the East Coast as well. I'm one of my favorite, like, activators of the citizen story is that, um, a guy called Yasmani Arbaleda, who's New York City Civic Engagement Commission's artist in residence and is currently doing a project to transform the, the city's annual participatory budgeting process into what he's calling the people's money machine. And just, so there's, there's, so yes, there are, there are really exciting examples. Um, I don't know enough about the forward party, if I'm honest. I guess the, the, the thing I would say is I'd go back to this thing about, uh, moments and how powerful they can be um and this is why i'm more focused on the 2026 anniversary than i am the presidential election in 24 and and also focused on i'm doing some doing some work and having some conversations about the la olympics in 2028 like these are moments when you could really kind of recalibrate the story quite dramatically so I mean, it's sort of the same as the picture as a whole. Like there is work going on all over the country. I mean, I could talk about Civic Genius, who is a lovely organization working in Boston and Baltimore and others. There's, uh, I could talk about the organization called Making America Dinner Again, which is sort of seeding like like (laughs) dinners all over the country. I could talk about Braver Angels who are getting sort of cross uh, bipartisan sort of local campaigning going. Like there's so many of these things in the States at that small level and and just as just as on the macro on the global scale the, the challenge is now how do we connect them up how do we tell the story of them how do we make them visible and then the the complementary challenge is how do we find the moments when they could be dramatically validated and and that work is all happening i i, I honestly i would i would point anyone and i including you towards baratunde i think i think he he has the potential to be, to be an incredible convening point for this because he doesn't, he's not going to do the job of another, starting another, another grassroots initiative. 
what he is as a storyteller and a cheerleader. You know that, you know that, um, that famous little very short TED talk about the first follower. You know, the one where there's a, there's the, it starts so that it's about leadership and it says like many people think mm-hmm. of leaders as the, as the people who are prepared to go out on a limb. And there's, and so the, and the videos of a single guy gets up and starts dancing like a crazy man in this field at a music festival and everyone. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know the one. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and uh-huh. it's like, yeah. that isn't leadership, actually. Leadership is the first follower is the true leader. It's like the first person to get up and join it because then everyone, like everyone who secretly wanted to then does. And in many ways, like I, how I'm coming to think of Baratunde and what and the role he could play, and maybe maybe me in the UK and the role I could play is a first follower, not a leader. Right? It's like, mm, what is yeah. it? What might he or I or many of us do in validating and making visible and saying these guys are amazing? Like being the cheerleader and the storyteller and the coach rather than the, rather than the athlete. Like I think that that's what I think will transform it. And I think, I think the how to citizen podcast is a first iteration of trying to do that. I think, but there's, there's loads more to come. Okay. I just like briefly your reflection or point of view on the power of cooperative movements. Yeah. I, I interviewed last week, a guy called Omar Freya, who runs a cooperative movement uh, that started in the Bronx in New York and is now going global. And it's really interesting. It's very focused on black and Latin communities. But it feels to me that what you're talking about is there there would be an accelerant of the citizen story if we started to encourage and embrace more cooperative type or style businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. I and I think again, like what has happened to the cooperative movement certainly in the UK is it's become very trapped in the consumer story, right? Like the and and this is a real problem. Because the la- a really powerful piece of language and a, and a structural idea that could be helping us step into the future has become just the supermarket loyalty card. I mean, the cooperative bank in the UK is not actually a cooperative anymore, and yet it still has the name. The disservice that that is making to the to the work we need to do is unbelievable. Mm. But so little moan, but but yes, like. The, yeah. There is a cooperative renaissance going on. There are more and more co-ops springing up all over the place. There are the the the, the concept of DAOs, uh, decentralized autonomous organisations, kind of potentially bringing cooperativism into the into the blockchain era. All of that is super exciting and is part of this. It's not the whole of it, but as like one of the one of the manifestations alongside deliberative democracy, participatory democracy movement building stories like it's it's definitely one of the one of the key ingredients for sure okay that's cool yeah i interviewed um don smith who talked about the theory of emergence which was a sort of a german philosopher who talked about it in the early part of the century and he talked about it in relation to his perspective on failure and success he said but everything's just emerging and i think when we first talked as well i mentioned the Antonio Gramsci quote about monsters rising up in in periods of great change and it feels like we're in that. Do you think that the citizen story is just in the process of emergence that, uh, well, I think you've, you probably answered it when you talked about those, those two sort of curves and that we're in the uh, early majority phase of this 
what are your hopes in terms of where you'd like to see it by 2030 in terms of that process of emergence? Because I know you're talking about 2026, 28, and a lot can happen in, in the time. If we think back to 2000, or 2023, think about 2016, you know, another seven years from now, so much can change. Where would you like to be? In, in all honesty, I, it's not really how my brain works to think about what state the future state. There's a phrase I used in the book that I borrowed from a wonderful um, woman who's who I've done a bit of work with over the years called Orit Gal. His way, her name means light wave in Hebrew. She grew up in a kibbutz, um, but she she she's a complexity theorist and she talks about um, social acupuncture uh, mm. and the idea that. Um, I mean, I use the language of emergence as well, and she does, and I, but I don't know if we're using it quite the same way. It's like, for me, it's about saying, like, this, this deep story of who we are, this citizen story is, is everywhere, and it's in us, and it's, and it's there, and it is emerging, and therefore the work mm-hmm. is to unleash it. It's like to release the energy flow yeah. of that story. And so, and this is why I think about moments, whether they're, whether it's the 26, 250th anniversary or the 2028 Olympics or whether it's the, the latest, a, a new David Attenborough documentary series that might bring the world's attention to a particular facet of the, env- of, of the environmental uh, disaster or whether it's the, there's a referendum on the indigenous voice to parliament in Australia and what that might do for, for the world's kind of understanding of relationship to indigenous thinking or like, these are the, I, I think in these moments because I'm looking for the acupuncture points. And so I focus there because I believe that either we will release the energy of this story or we won't. And, and I don't, and also because I don't really know what it would look like. I don't think we can know. And I don't think it's important that we know what it looks like. I'm not, I haven't got a design. This is my, a lot of my answer when people are, when, when I was challenged and someone said, are you a communist? And I was like, no, it's not. I'm like, mm-hmm. but, but part of me not being a communist is because I don't have a, have an exact, like, I don't have a template for society that I'm trying to impose. What I, what I'm doing, what, what this work is about, I think is about flipping the telescope so that, because I think it's deeply disempowering to try and design the next society who can do that and 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 also deeply alienating because it just creates oppositions and this is a bit of the thing about talking about post-capitalism and anti-capitalism degrowth you're still talking about capitalism and growth like instead of doing that what i want to do is split the telescope and go look we are all in this moment in time we're, we're consumers if we step into an idea of ourselves as citizens and start interacting from that basis ourselves and one another then it might be that in two years or three years or after the next big acupuncture point, we, what we're living in is no longer accurately described as capitalism. But I don't have to start by telling you we're in communism or Johnism. I don't have to go there. It's like, it's not, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to go there. I just need to go. How do we start yeah. from where we are? It's going back to you. You don't want to be the dear old priest. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, final two questions. I mean, I set out this podcast to engineer serendipitous connections and, it, and it's happening because I'm interviewing you and I want to facilitate random collisions between other like-minded thinkers. So I need to ask your permission if you're okay for me to connect you with other people I think could add to your story. Yeah, definitely. I, that, that makes me think of um, PFG Doncaster again and their, uh, their concept of bumping spaces. I think that's, that would be a nice one. Ah, there, you, there you go. Yeah. It's another way of putting it. Cool. I'll do that. Final question. Who do I interview next? Ooh. Uh, I want to say um, a woman called Ece Timolkuren, uh, who is a mm-hmm. Turkish writer and activist. She wrote a book called How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, and another book called Together, wow. A Manifesto Against the Heartless World. And, and she's gone deeper into the despair of this moment and deeper into the, I won't say hope because she has a particular thing against the concept of hope than anyone I've ever met. Um, mm. And I'd love to, I'd love to listen to the conversation. So I'd like you to have it. Cool. So yeah, I look forward to that. Well, uh, John, leave you to um, your your Friday Friday evening in the UK and uh, I'm going to have a glass of wine with Cheers, Jane. Cheers, mate. Real pleasure. Thank you. Man. Yeah. Thank you very much. Cool. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. That's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. 